Sustainability. It's more, of course, than mere economic sustainability. But it's also more than ecological sustainability alone, which, thankfully, has become the focus of so many initiatives lately. To take a more holistic look at the idea of sustainability, you need to include two additional dimensions, human and social sustainability. So if you want to run a truly sustainable hospitality business, you need to A, look after your guests with excellent service for sustained economic success, B, minimize your environmental impact for ecological sustainability, and three and four, look after the well-being of your staff and the local communities you interact with for social and human sustainability. My name is Lydia Vanderbroek, and I wanted to find out what the best practices are around great service, people development, and ecological sustainability in the field of hospitality and tourism. So I talked to real people in real businesses to hear about real solutions to real challenges, and I'm happy to share their learnings with you. So if you want to become more sustainable, I invite you to listen in to our conversations and pick out some of the gold nuggets that you can hopefully then use in your own operation. And as a side note, every one of my guests has offered to make themselves available for a more in-depth conversation. So by all means, do reach out, connect, and together, let's make hospitality and tourism more sustainable. And welcome to our episode today. Today, I get to talk to Warren Green. Warren is a marketing professional and he is a sustainable travel specialist. He runs his own consultancy. It's called Warren Green Associates. And uh, boy, does he have stories to tell. He's sharing with us today so much from his expertise and experience working for Saba Saba Private Game Reserve from his engagements in uh, Mozambique, in Tanzania. I mean, he is such a walking encyclopedia. It's amazing. So you're going to enjoy it. I'm literally asking three questions and the rest of the time is all Warren sharing his experience. You're going to love it. I hope you will. And I'll see you on the other side. Bye-bye. Hi, Warren. We made it. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule for us to have this conversation here today. As you know, I want to bring people together. I want us to start talking about real sustainability, sustainability in real life for real people, how to solve real challenges. And you're somebody with so much experience. You've been to so many places. You've worked with so many people and hotels and institutions that I'm sure we can learn a lot from your experience. So thank you very much. Morning or afternoon, your time, Lydia. It's a pleasure to be with you. And hopefully my one eye ca can lead the blind. I still feel as though I'm, I'm learning much about sustainable practices. I think it's an industry or it's a field of our industry in travel that is uh, forever growing and, and we're finding new ways of, of sort of reinventing the sustainable discussion and practice. All right. Great. So Warren, I'm going to be picking your brain around your best practices, what you would suggest to people listening to this that might have their own operation. But to get the conversation started, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to end up in the hospitality business? Are you hospitality? Are you marketing? Because most so far we've had hotel hoteliers on, uh, on this podcast. So you're the first marketing guy. So that's going to be interesting. Well, so you, please tell us about your life a little you, bit. I'll, I'll give you a thumbnail um, because my life, I suppose, all starts in Cape Town of South Africa, the most southern tip of the African continent, where I was uh, schooled. I left school and I went very fortunately up to KwaZulu-Natal and I spent some time with the late Dr. Ian Player, who was the founder of the wilderness movement in Southern Africa and later to become the wilderness movement throughout the world. And what that organization was all about was recognizing that as a society, we tend to develop and develop and develop structures, roads, networks, overhead power lines, airline routes, etc. And in doing so, we destroy the wilderness of our world. And there are very few places today where you can wander without carrying an aeroplane, without hearing the distant noise of a train, 
without hearing a motor vehicle somewhere in the distance. There are very few places where you can actually sit and enjoy the absolute and utter peace and tranquility of Mother Nature. So his organization, the Wilderness Leadership School, was a lobbying type organization influencing governments and administrations to set aside parts of the world that would be sacrosanct and remain pure, unadulterated, unaffected wilderness. And so that's who I started out my environmental career with, was Dr. Ian Player. And it was a wonderful experience that sort of orientated me and set me on my path through life. And there were many things going on in South Africa at the time. We were living through apartheid. Many of my age group were going to the military and, and doing our military years. And so life changed a little bit. And when I came out of that, I was a little bit disorientated, got involved in the restaurant business and my first exposure to the hospitality industry. And in fact, it is that for me was a major turning point. And I'll give you a very brief story to illustrate what it meant. I was sitting one Sunday morning and gazing out the front door of the restaurant, I saw this beautiful blue Cape sky. It was a spring day and there wasn't a soul to be seen on the road. And I, I was sitting there counting out money to put into the wage packets for the staff because Sunday was the weekly payday. And while I was sitting there in my environment that smelled of grease and, and old food and that typical early morning restaurant smell before you've got everything opened up and ready for your customers. But I looked around the shop and I saw plastic plants in planters that are to be dusted and washed every other day to make them look like they were fresh and new flowers. I looked out the front door and besides the blue sky, all I could see was a paved road and a concrete sidewalk and a vibrocrete wall. I did not see one living thing in my immediate environment. And it was at that moment that I made a decision. I've got to get out of this concrete jungle and I've got to get back into the wilderness, back into the, the wilds of the world, which is where I felt most comfortable. And so that was the turning point. I literally moved on from there. I joined Sabi Sabi, private game reserve in South Africa as a game ranger. I went through a training program, learned the skills of guiding guests, taking them out on safari. And as you'll know, Sabi Sabi is a splendid company. It is committed to sustainable practices and has been since its inception. It's part of the, the company's overall goal and objective is to ensure that their own piece of wildlife and, and wilderness remains, if not expands, for future generations. They've recognized that to achieve that status, they need to put money back into the environment, but more importantly, they need to put money into the communities that are supported by that environment to allow them to become economically empowered and also at the same time realize the financial opportunity that having wildlife on their doorstep presents through tourism, tourism opportunities such as work and services that can supply the lodge and the, the reserve environment. So I got to work for Sabi Sabi in the late 80s through the 90s. I got involved in the marketing, international sales of the company, which got me to spread my wings worldwide, traveling everywhere to promote our destination. And at the same time, throughout those travels, I realized that the world was big, but the world was also full of carbon-creating practices, and that if we as a, as a race, as a humanity, were to survive, we needed to actually change our behavior. I was, I suppose, in a way something of a big thinker, but not such a big doer. And so I could see a number of these problems on the horizon with very little opportunity to do anything about them. So I praise guys like Elon Musk, who have entered our world now and are actively engineering practices to, to change the way we consume energy and utilize our products. But that's a, that's a side note. Um, I wish I had had the capacity to be an Elon Musk back then. I feel that, that with my vision, I could have, I suppose, affected change. But when I moved to the States, I saw an opportunity in so much as that I, I was found myself in a marketing job promoting travel destinations around the world. My portfolio at that time in the early 2000s was populated with trains, planes, cruise ships, and all sorts of mass tourism-orientated products that really weren't doing anything on a sustainable basis. And I felt something of a, of a traitor to my own cause. I had to survive and I needed to keep a roof over my head. So I was bound by this company until 
finally, I got to a point where I'd reached some form of financial stability and I could make those first moves and do my own thing, uh, which was in 2007, 2008. And I wanted to be more of an environmental consultant uh, to help people develop sustainable practices. Um, And that was the intention when I started Warren Green and Associates. However, at that point, I'd been fairly well known, particularly from an African perspective, for my contact with the North American travel trade. And I was somewhat bought for, for those contacts and used as a sales representative in North America. However, in creating my portfolio, remember, I have this heady goal of wanting to make an impact on our world. I wanted to change for the benefit of our grandchildren so that they can one day enjoy pure pleasure of breathing fresh air and drinking clean water. So I committed myself and my company to only support sustainable tourism entities, which required checking them out, understanding what they were doing from a sustainable point of view, vetting them, and then allowing them to be part of my portfolio. And people would then pay me a retainer, and in return, I would solicit support from the trade. Knowing that, if I called on a tour operator and convinced them to use, for example, Sabi Sabi or the Bush Camp Company in Zambia or Lamala in East Africa, if I could convince them to use those companies in their itineraries, that they would in turn be contributing to the long-term benefit of our planet because these were companies that were doing something to improve the planet, not just to operate a profitable business and give tourists a really fine experience, but they were actively doing stuff that was making our environment a better place for all of us. And so I felt that way, even though I'm no longer at the coalface as I was in South Africa, I was with my shoulder at the grindstone, advancing this wonderful cause of sustainable practices. Now, that was back in 2008. My, let's call them competitors in the representation and marketing industry, were talking about luxury this and bespoke that and all the adjectives used to describe their portfolio of clients related to the opulence and affluence of their, their product and their potential travelers. I, on the other hand, was going out not even focusing on the luxurious nature of the companies that I represent, and they all are fine products. I was focusing on what they were doing from a a commitment point of view to the planet. And that seemed to gain a lot of attention earlier on in the game. Some tour operators, in fact, I would say at that time, the majority of tour operators really didn't care about sustainable practices. It wasn't part of their language. Today, 11, 12 years in, all my competitors have woven sustainable language into their marketing um, speaks, uh, into their marketing conversations, into their marketing collateral. All of the companies that I've called on in terms of tour operators are actively promoting sustainable destinations. They're using that as a peg on which to identify their tour operating businesses. So I'm very pleased that my competitors now have become allies in terms of advancing the sustainable practice. And I'm very pleased that the companies that I've been calling on who move people around the world are now starting to scrutinize the destinations, particularly from a sustainable perspective. So here I am today running around North America. Well, I was running around North America in 2019. I've been running around the internet in 2020. And 2021 looks like things are easing up and I can get back on the road to to shout and scream about sustainable practices. Excellent. Goes to show you, you don't have to be an Elon Musk to really make a difference, right? No, but I always say if we had 10,000 Elon Musks, can you imagine what sort of a planet we would be living in? But look at the difference you're already making, right? So you are, you're going exactly the way that I'm imagining things. You know, we bring people on board and like you said, they used to be competitors, but now in a way, you know, they're becoming allies. And ultimately, I mean, I keep on saying at one point, you know, being a sustainable or regenerative uh, establishment in the hospitality industry is not going to be a USP anymore. Well, more power to us, right? If this is just a norm at one point, we're not even talking about it anymore, right? No, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, that to me is the end goal, is that everybody starts to adopt these standards. And, you know, if my portfolio of clients were the early adopters, if they were the people that had the vision from the outset, well, fantastic. We always want leadership 
to lead from the front and practice what they preach. And if the followers are going to do the same, power to them. I agree. Absolutely agree. That That's where we all need to go. So I want to pick your brain in two regards. One is, you know, my claim is I'm talking to real people about real solutions to real challenges. And I'm imagining that, uh, you know, listeners might be people who are running their own operation in whatever field of the hotels, of the of tourism and hospitality industry. So my first question is, is what have you seen that's really impressed you, that's really remarkable, that you feel that others should know about regarding a sustainable operation? Well, Lydia, there is so much. And I'm going to talk with examples uh, because I think it'll, it'll help illustrate the point. The first is very close to my heart, uh, Sabi Sabi Private Game Reserve. I joined the company in, in the, the late 80s. It's now 40, nearly 45-year-old business. And its practices that it put in place from the outset are exemplary of sustainable practices. And the first and the most important aspect of sustainability is profitability. Think about this past year, 2020, and what we have faced in our travel industry, the loss of billions of dollars worth of revenue. I don't know how many millions of jobs, uh, how many businesses have closed, how many people are now destitute as a result of travel being shut down. So Sabi Sabi's number one principle was to operate a profitable business. They managed their company with available liquidity. So in the, the 80s, Sabi wasn't the most luxurious of the private game reserves. It lagged behind a little bit. But every year, as they had accumulated some cash, the money was reinvested back in the business, making it a better place for a tourist to visit and keeping up with the neighboring reserves who were either doing practicing the same sort of financial business or were borrowing money to develop an even better property. Sabi Sabi always maintained that it would develop as and when it was financially viable to develop. And I'm not talking about putting into place brass taps and marble tabletops and, you know, all, all the luxurious looking opulent stylistic things. I'm talking about training. I'm talking about developing people, talking about getting involved in the community outside the reserve, developing those communities to understand the benefit of the game reserve. Training was a massive component of the organization. It didn't just focus on basic skills training for, let's say, a waiter or a barman or a chambermaid to turn down a bedroom. It focused on the entire concept of the game reserve, the entire concept of the game reserve in combination with Sabi Sabi, the business, so that staff would understand the mechanisms and, and the means behind all the madness of running this operation. I know that for a fact because I was involved in all of those training programs. We got involved in train the trainer so that not only were our staff learning, but they were being taught how to teach as well. And we crossed all aspects of the employees in, in, in that business, from the lowliest guy who would wheel logs to the fire through to the most senior manager. Everybody had the opportunity to be trained. In addition to that, Sabi was seeking opportunities outside. Every one employee was basically the moneymaker for a family of around 10 to 12 people. So in my day, we employed somewhere in the region of 350 staff members. So that's close to a, a, a greater community of 3,500 dependent on Sabi Sabi. And along with that dependence came other needs like potable water in the homes, like education facilities outside in the community, like clinics for, for healthcare, and like things like libraries for you know, advanced education. Sabi got involved in all of that, throwing, not throwing money, investing money into certain communities that our staff came from and developing their amenities outside the reserves to give them a better lifestyle. Today, When you drive from the town of Hazyview to the Sabi Sabi Private Game Reserve gate, you see a thriving community of people. Homes have moved. They've changed from the old mud huts with a grass roof to architect-designed homesteads with pillars and gables 
new roof materials like, what do you, what do you call that, uh, Adobe-type roof material, these homes have become massive by comparison to what existed 30 years ago. And that is thanks to organizations like Sabi Sabi recognizing the needs of the community and providing that education. So that's one aspect of it. And I use Sabi as an example when illustrating that. I'm going to take you through to Mozambique since you're involved there. Um, Gorongosa National Park, the gem of Mozambique back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, a thriving ecosystem that consisted of elephants, buffalo, I mean, you name it, that was in that area. It appeared in Gorongosa. It was a fabulous national park with the most exquisite terrain, granitic outcrops, uh, limestone caves, massive flood plains, wonderful grasslands. It just had so much going for it. Unfortunately, Mozambique from the 60s onwards was thrust into a very bloody, very dirty and horrible civil war that concluded in the late 90s. Renamo, which was the antagonist, was based in Gorongosa. They used the national park as their breadbasket. So basically, their soldiers fed on the wildlife of the park, denuding it, wiping it out literally entirely. So when you start interfering with a natural biome like that, and you take out key herbivores, the vegetation changes. You get pioneer species overrunning your tertiary species, which are more sensitive and thrive on predation, etc. So once that all changes, your ecosystem alters too. And so the carrying capacity of the land changes. And when this fellow by the name of Greg Carr moved in 20 years ago, he found nothing but warthogs and waterbuck. Almost everything else had been wiped out, gone. And he decided that he was going to take on Gorongosa as a project. He committed, I think it was in the region of $40 million of his own money over a 10-year period to restoring it. To restore it required science, required ecologists and people who understood how that ecosystem should perform and what it should like. And so through a whole lot of research where he allowed Princeton University students, graduate students to come in and do their studies, he enabled them to complete their doctorates, but at the same time harvested so much information necessary to repopulate the reserve and restore it to what it needed to be. He then engaged in these restorative programs, bringing in wildlife in a staggered basis so that the environment could sustain those numbers. And I'm giving you a very quick thumbnail. I've been consulting for Gorongosa for the last six months or so, assisting them to develop their tourism product. I haven't been involved in the restoration of the park. That came a long time before me, and it's been a fascinating project to review and, in fact, follow over the last decade while I've been active. Uh, I've seen, seen what's going on. So what they figured out was, and, and Greg told me this, in, in fact, in one of my podcast interviews, I did speak to him. He, he said that when he first arrived in that area, one of the things that shook him to his socks was the fact that the people had no clothes. They were wearing cardboard and newspapers to cover their bodies. If they had clothing, it was threadbare. And it struck him that they were desperately poor and desperately in need. And he figured that, well, to restore the game reserve, he needed to have a he needed to influence the communities as well and restore some form of microeconomy into the region surrounding the park to uplift all of these people. So similarly to what Sabi Sabi did, Greg started putting in place, well, let me not say Greg, because it's him and a number of very committed individuals who've put their shoulder to the grindstone and really driven this project to its fruition. They've put in place clinics, training programs. They've empowered women who in that region were subservient to males. They've created agricultural projects and that people can survive off. One of the things that struck me and kind of shook me a little bit because it's a departure from the conservation practices that I'm familiar with in Africa, and that is that a national park is an authoritarian type place. The administration gets in, puts up fences, encloses the park, creates a bunch of, bunch of rules, and in, in a sense keeps people out and animals in and allows you in on a limited basis. What the Gorongosa project did was it looked at the park and realized that there was a rainforest that used to exist around Mount Gorongosa that had been entirely wiped out for the hardwoods and the hardwood trade, and that needed to be restored. In restoring the rainforest, you would restore the microclimate and you would have an impact on the area and the agricultural profitability of the area. 
So one of his key objectives was to get that rainforest restored. And he kind of scratched his head and tried to figure out, well, how do you, how do you bring back a rainforest? Um, it's not something that happens overnight. It's a long-term objective, and it requires all sorts of protection. And so he started a coffee project where the community could get involved, plant their coffee beans, grow coffee, harvest it, and realize a profit within a very short period of time. Within five years, they could be making money out of their coffee crop. And at the same time, there was an association. Coffee grows best in shade. And so whenever they planted a coffee plantation, they would plant the trees that would make up that rainforest, indigenous growing trees. And because the community would depend on the, the income from the coffee, it was incumbent on them to protect those rainforest trees as well. And so the rainforest is now being restored at a fairly rapid rate with every single one of those giant ebonies and teak trees that, that belong to that rainforest being planted by hand. So now there's an incredible association between what would normally be an agricultural practice supported by a natural environment and synergistically working together to grow this, this rainforest, which is just a, an incredible, incredible project. So that, that's one aspect of something that's very practical, that is working on a sustainable basis to improve that um, national park. And it's, it's not just that. They're now busy with cashew nuts. They've got all sorts of other crops that the people are getting involved in. They've realized that elephants that break out of the, the reintroduced elephants that have been breaking out of the reserve can be contained by erecting beehives uh, around the border of the park, isolating or identifying the main routes that the elephants are using to go and raid crops. They now create these barriers of beehives. Elephants are petrified of bees. So they get into the area of the bees and they turn around and they head back into the park. The community harvests the honey and sells it. So you've now got another mutualistic project that's benefiting that's both genius. the elephants. That's it is genius. genius. So that's just another, and I want to say small example, because it's a relatively inferior little project by comparison to recreating an entire park, but it's something that is working in favor of, of both. So there's some practical examples of, of how we've got this resurrection of a, of a wonderful game reserve that is being built on a sustainable foundation from its outset. And there's, there's honestly so much more to the Gorongosa project that can be discussed. I don't want to focus entirely on it right now because I briefly want to talk to you about another company that's doing remarkable things in East Africa, in Tanzania. Lamala, East Africa, operates lodges between the Tarangiri National Park and the Serengeti. So that's the northern safari circuit of Tanzania, which is to some degree a popular route and well-publicized and in no shortage of tourists on an annual basis. People follow the migration and so it has its peaks and troughs in terms of, of attracting tourists. And you might think, well, with all that going on, there's very little opportunity for sustainable operations. Well, on the contrary, because if you're employed in the camp, you're making some money. If you're not employed in the camp, you're on the periphery of the reserve. There's very little for you to do other than subsistence farming. You're not making money. Those people are vulnerable. And because they're vulnerable, the park is vulnerable. They can go in and poach. They can sell their bush meat and make a profit. So you want to try and discourage that behavior. But how do you do it when the tourism dollar is actually focused on getting into the reserve and, and watching animals. From a sustainable point of view, the lodge has gone about all of their infrastructural development in the right way. They've built the lodges from recycled material. They've taken into consideration wastewater when people shower. Where does it go? How does it get utilized? Well, if you shower, you need to use a biodegradable soap. Ditto for when you're washing your dishes and pots and pans in the kitchen. Things need to be done in a bi biodegradable way so that you don't foul up the ecosystem. Where's the water coming from? Is it renewable or is it just, how do they source that? So they've, they've gone about collecting their water in a sustainable way. They've also looked at the scourge of the world at the moment, which is plastic. And I know, I think we should all be on a, a rampage against using plastics, but Think about it. Your telephone has got some sort of plastic material in it. The toothbrush you use in the morning has got plastic in it. So plastic is very much part of our lives, and we all need to find ways of eliminating it. And I think when you're dealing with tourism, you've got people coming in and out. You've got to use a lot of product. Um, and so they, by eliminating plastic, are big contributors to, to saving our planet. And I wish it was 
practiced throughout every aspect of the tourism industry because of the number of people that move on a daily basis. So what they've done is they've said no to all plastic. And this is quite a fascinating project for me because how do you eliminate plastic? And they've done so in every single component of their business. The first and the most obvious is water for people to drink. It comes in plastic bottles. It's convenient. The lid is sealed. As a tourist, you know you're getting a clean product. You're not going to get a stomach bug once you've drunk your water, which I suppose is everyone's number one concern when traveling abroad. They have put in these filtration systems that pass the water through ultraviolet rays, making it absolutely pure and clean when it is available for people to drink. Obviously, you need something to store your water in when you're out in safari. So they use recycled aluminum material, and they provide you with your own personal water bottle. They give you some instruction on how to keep it clean and use it on a daily basis. And that way you eliminate, honestly, around about three to five water bottles per person per day. Um, so that's one aspect, getting plastic out the way. Then they've looked at, at glassware. How many bottles of wine do they open for a tourist every year? And it amounts to thousands. So all those empty bottles of wine go to a production plant in Arusha where they are converted to glassware that is returned to the lodge for a price and used as carafes to store the water and serve it from the bar or the dining room table or in the bedroom. By the way, the place where the water, the glass bottles are recycled is entirely staffed by people with all sorts of physical handicaps, be they deaf, be they blind, be they armless, be they legless, be they cripples. So this little company is assisting people who would normally be on the street, unemployable and destitute to earn a reasonable living. So not only is the glass being recycled, but it's empowering other people and it's coming back wow. to the lodge. You're repurposing stuff, all good stuff. So those are two aspects that I think are worthy of mentioning. There is so much more that goes on behind the scenes that can be spoken about. But I want to draw your attention to a particular project that they've got involved in. And I want to draw your attention to it because it addresses that issue. Well, if you live outside of the reserve and you're unemployed, then what? You're still destitute. So in Tanzania, on this northern circuit, um, between the Tarangiri and uh, Ngorongoro Crater, there is a town called Wambu, which is uh, the name of a river that runs through the town. Most tourists would drive straight through that town on their way from one reserve to the other reserve, barely stopping to pay it any attention, which is fair enough. Your holiday is short. You, you need to get from A to B, and you don't need to stop in a dirty old town. Well, it's not a dirty old town. It's actually a fascinating village with all sorts going on behind that main street. There are rice paddies. There's a fishing community. There's a community of people that come from Mozambique who are wonderful woodcarvers. There are artists that paint in three different types of uh, Tanzanian painting styles that display their work that you won't see from the main road. There is a market that sells everything from bicycle spares through to fruit. There is a small little brewery that creates beer from bananas. There's all sorts of stuff going on that is fascinating to see, but you don't see it as a tour. Enter the scene, an entrepreneur. His name is Mr. Sunday. He's a local. He belongs to Mtowambu. He identified a problem, and that is that young women growing up in orphanages were ending up on the streets of Dar es Salaam, practicing the age-old trade. And he would like, he wanted to give them an opportunity to do something more with their lives. So he's brought them to Mtowambu, and he's trained them to be tour guides. With the support of Lamala, financial support of Lamala, he's been able to purchase that Asian-style tuk-tuk, you know, the three-wheel little scooter mm -hmm. that's used as, as transport. He's bought a number of those. And these young women who have now been trained as guides take you around the back streets of Mtowambu, showing you and educating you on what's going on in and around the village. Fascinating stuff. All controlled by Mr. Sunday and developed by Mr. Sunday. I don't know how many tour guides we've got now. In fact, it's not fair to even talk about that because of the last year. But I sampled that that product of his way back in the beginning. I had a young woman take me out on a drive. Her name was Mary. She was shy. She was very nervous about talking to us. And the way she delivered her tour was quite immature. I went back nine months later. I had Mary again by good fortune. Well, the transformation of that woman 
well, should I say a transformation? Yeah, the transformation of that woman from being nervous, shy, was palpable. At the, the nine months to her, the nine months later, she was in command. Her repertoire had grown. Her command of English was so much more powerful. She was able to entertain us, control us, move us, share with us all about her community. And to me, that was just a beautiful, beautiful project and something that deserves to be supported and is benefiting from the tourism that runs through those reserves. Mary today has been employed by Lamala and is their first ranger or first guide working out of Nanyuki camp in the Tarangiri. So it's an amazing story. Because of Lamala's involvement, they now are absorbing, they're giving these women the opportunity to progress, not to remain as tour guides, but to progress and, and work within the Lamala family of, of lodges. In addition to that, and this is going to be my, my last example of, of sustainable practices. I asked. <laughs> is is a, a project, and again, remember we were talking about getting rid of plastic waste and one of the greatest consumers of plastic were people on safari. So now you have people going out on safari, they're spending all day, in the hot African sun, they need a lunch. They need a lunch and it needs to be packed in a lunch box and it needs to be sealed so that the eggs don't go bad and the chicken doesn't, you know, doesn't get uh, whatever it's called, that bacteria. Salmonella. So, yeah. And so typically those lunch boxes were made out of plastic and everything inside the, the box was, was a sealed plastic container. So there's a major contributor to plastic waste. They, Lamala, and with Mr. Sunday, identified the women in the town of Mtowambu were the most vulnerable and needed financial support. So now you have a daughter, a mother, and a grandmother living in the same community, all performing domestic chores to keep the household going, but also having time to do some work. So what they have created, now remember, one of the products of this town is bananas. They grow all sorts of bananas, cooking bananas, eating bananas, bearing bananas. There is an abundance of banana leaves and banana plants. So they take the fallen leaf, they repurpose it and turn it into a box. And that is now the lunch box that has replaced the plastic box. It is done in such a way that it's not a formal industry where you all pitch up to the factory at six in the morning and you leave at four in the afternoon or whatever. They are trained in how to make the boxes and that family unit will make boxes whenever they can and deliver them to Mr. Sunday. So they basically get paid on consignment or paid on delivery when they deliver their boxes. He originally started with three or four families producing boxes. The demand by Lamala alone required him to employ more women. And now the balance of the safari industry has followed. And as I said to you right in the beginning, our goal in sustainable practices is to lead and hope that everybody will join us. They started to follow and are buying these boxes from Mr. Sunday. He now employs somewhere in the region of 150 women or families Unbelievable. that are making these, these incredible banana leaf boxes. So Lamala, in its fight to eliminate plastic, did very well from their own lodge points of view. But there would be other companies that used their lodges and hadn't adopted this uh, stance against plastic and were arriving. And of course, when your tourists go to bed, it's time for you as a guy to clean out your vehicle, make sure it's nice and ready for the safari next morning. So all the empty plastic that was left behind after people had drunk their water was being dumped at Lamala's camps. And they said, we can't tolerate this. Either you come without plastic or you don't use our properties. They needed the revenue, so they couldn't really be too demanding. So they had to scratch their heads and come up with another plan. They've created these collection baskets at the entrance to their camps and the guides who arrive there with guests know they cannot proceed into the camp unless they've thrown their plastic into those baskets. That plastic then goes back to Arusha where it's recycled and it's turned into desks that are used in schools around the Serengeti National Park. Wow. Solved the problem and created a, an opportunity for something else. So that's practical examples for you, Lydia. Fantastic. Well, I, in my mind, I'm creating a pin wall, you know, where you can just put all the best practices up there for people to just pull them off and, and use them. This has been an incredible basket of best practices. This is fantastic. And it's just, just, just so much in there. So I love the banana leaf boxes. I wish we had them here in Europe. Why can't we have them here, right? Yeah, um, yeah. 
I love the connecting of the dots. I love the synergy. I love to see what happens when you train people, right? Because this is one part, you know, I always say sustainability also has to do with the, the human dimension. And if you don't invest in people, there's never gonna, it's never going to be truly sustainable. And what people develop once, once they have the opportunity. And then I'm dying to meet Mr. Sunday. <laughs> Isn't he a wonderful man? What a man, what a guy, what a vision. That sounds fantastic. And of course, all these efforts to reduce plastic are just incredibly commendable. And, you know, what? whatever one can do is definitely better than nothing. And what I took away from the earlier examples is always the community involvement. Is that what it is? It's the main thing is you got to get everybody on board. I, it, it is. And I think it's it's actually... I don't want to say specific to Africa. I think Africa has got some very real economic needs within communities that surround these national parks because those people have been marginalized for so long. And also because in many respects, national parks emerge in areas where typical animal husbandry is unprofitable. So what do you do with the land? Well, let's turn it into a national park. Typically doesn't take up your prime land. That's already being utilized for cattle ranching, agricultural purposes, et cetera. So in Africa, I think the community is a huge focus because of their vulnerability. I don't know that that would be the case in developed and first world countries. I often think about this. I used to go and call on National Geographic up in Washington, D.C. And it's a really interesting building because it's shaped almost in a, in a U style with a courtyard in the middle and the windows out the, the, the planters, the outside each window are covered in moisture absorbing greenery. In and around Washington, there is a whole lot of communities that need some form of social support. And it struck me that there was an opportunity for that office building to do something that was sustainable. Why not turn those planters into vegetable growing planters instead of ornamental plants? Outside in the middle of the courtyard is a wonderful water feature, basically a koi pond. And there is an opportunity for this company, this exemplary company, one that's turned our eyes and opened our, you know, opened our minds to global adventure. And yet they are not innovators in their own backyard. Turn that whole system into an aquaponic system. So you've got your fish pond down below. You could be producing tilapia, trout, or maybe some bass that are being fed by the waste coming from the plants. Well, no, sorry, the, the, the plants are being fed by the waste from the fish uh, growing a crop up there that can be harvested and eaten by the homeless. And then they can go and catch trout at certain times of the year and eat those too. It just struck me that in this first world city environment, there was mm. opportunity and nobody was taking it. How often yep. do you walk down the main streets of, of any town, any city, anywhere in the world, and you don't see any plant that's edible? It's all ornamental. Why waste all that energy? Put something in place that people can eat. Grab True. a peach. Put out a carrot. You know, if you're going to go to the effort to, to plant, yeah. <laughs> the same effort goes into it. So I guess it's, it's really all a matter of, you know, wearing the right lenses, right? The right glasses, the right lenses and seeing opportunity and seeing sustainability. And, and I guess once you're on the track, you see opportunities wherever you turn, right? Yes, you, yes, you do. And, and I'm, as I said right in the beginning, it's all about profitability as well. If things are not profitable, they will fail. And so one has to view that as well in perspective and understand, okay, so this is an old building. It needs to re refurbish, rejig to bring it into modern times. And, and you need to address things like, well, maybe you can use solar energy. Um, you know, the, the, the new energy light bulbs are certainly a way of saving energy, but how do you, repurpose the, the water reticulation system in a building that relies on a town sewer system. So so that's bigger picture stuff. And mm -hmm. you would like to think that town planners and administrators are sitting down and considering the future in 15 to 20 years time and what that city would look like. How can it be how can we start putting in place infrastructure to bring about that sustainable change? Mm -hmm. So yes, your comment about, about the communities is, is really important. I see it as a highlight of sustainable practices on the, in the African context, but it certainly can become something that we can Everywhere. consider in the first, yeah. first world context. Yeah. So if we are now uh, putting our focus on people who might have their own operation, hospitality operation, tourism operation, and they're 
listening to this to get some thoughts out of this you can pick from from the basket of ideas you've you've just served us so to summarize i would almost say you got to take a look at the big picture right and take a step back and and not just say you know okay we use glass instead of plastic but how do we reuse the glass and i might you know, I might have to go outside of my circle of this is my property, this is my operation and say, where could we, right? In which community, where, like you said, with the disabled people, right? Who do I talk to? What could we do with the glasses? So it's really, you really got to tackle it from a much higher level and from a almost like a bird's eye perspective and really connect the dots because it only happens when people are working together synergistically, the local communities in a wider sense. Yeah, you're right. You do have to have uh, a broad vision. And, and the importance here is vision. Because once you start looking at your business with sustainable goals in mind, you start seeing outside the daily operation and you start looking at other aspects. Other aspects include your supply chain. Where are you getting your soaps from? Where are you getting your shampoos? Where are you getting your bed linen? How are you sourcing your energy? All of these things are being generated and created somewhere and is what those industries doing sustainable or not? And so if you're making a statement, I'm a sustainable business, I will be sustainable by what I do within my parameters of this business. That's fine. But you can have a greater influence by looking outside your front door and saying, okay, listen, you guy, you're selling me all, all my kitchenware. I don't want it to come in packaging. Make sure you right. deliver it in biodegradable cardboard boxes. And by the way, when you come in to take something out, here's your container that you brought it to me. I've cleaned it and washed it. Please take it back and re reuse it. You know, sanitize it properly and send it back to me full with tomato paste, whatever the case might be. So you start looking at those aspects too. And so I think what's important for people who are making decisions now on, on emerging in the sustainable field is start small. You know, yeah. if, you, if you've got an existing business, look at aspects of the business that you can change and change them with a view to growing that change throughout your organization. And some of the companies that I brought into my portfolio for representation were brought in because they had the vision, but at the time when they joined me, they didn't have the means. So they still had some archaic practices that weren't sustainable. They recognized that, but they had a management plan to eliminate those foul practices and replace them with sustainable practices as it became profitable to do so. So yeah, it's, it's you're right. Big vision. Oh, big, I see big there's view. so much more that there's so much more we could pull out of your brain and, and your experience. Do and I'm conscious of the time limit that yeah. you've driven by your schedule. Warren, you being the marketing specialist, of course, uh, we haven't had much chance to go into that field and maybe there's another time to explore this some more. But it's the one thing, you know, but you got to be sustainable. you got to be financially sustainable. That's what you started this out with. And market to market my property properly is one way of making myself financially sustainable. Is there one thing that you can provide us with that from your experience, a lot of clients do not do and ought to be doing in order to market themselves better? Well, I will say most of them are somewhat shy about boasting about their sustainable practices. And that's where I, I'm not. I'm very proud of what they're doing on a sustainable front. So if you are sustainable and you are doing things that are remarkable, use that as your marketing commentary because it's making an impact and it's making people listen and it's making people want to use you. The tide now is turning. Consumers are becoming so much more aware of the impact they have when they travel and they are making decisions based on the impact that they will have. And, and so it's becoming, I don't want to say a trend or trendy, it's becoming conscious. Mm -hmm. and, and so, yes, if you're sustainable, talk about it, don't be shy. And I, I suppose another aspect of marketing, which I've witnessed over literally the last decade, is the dissolution of brochures and printed material. It is no longer about, you remember those trade shows, you used to go and come with a broken shoulder because you're carrying 10 tons of paper. Today, the companies that I represent do not produce printed material. It's all available online, PDFs if you really have to print it out, but the websites are there with the information 
If you're dealing with the trade, access is via back door so that they can get confidential information without it prejudicing the consumers or prejudicing themselves in front of the consumers. So the internet has, has made the need for printed material obsolete. And so that's one huge area that in a, in a marketing context, you can not only save money, but be more sustainable. The other aspect of marketing, which now is going to be challenging for all of us, is the amount of carbon we generate by flying from our country to a destination to go and promote ourselves. How many trips abroad you make in a year, this all adds up to that great carbon footprint that's helping to create climate change. And so one needs to review that and understand that. So I would say, and again, a little bit of self-promotion, find yourself a representative, somebody who is already in your source market country who can promote you on your behalf so that you don't have to make that journey over twice a year or three times a year, whatever it might be. So that's just another short comment on, on the marketing aspect. Okay. And maybe one day we'll do a pure marketing sustainability, how to market sustainability projects uh, podcast. I think for today, it was fantastic. I thank you so very much for uh, sharing all of that uh, that you've experienced and you've seen. I know there's a lot more and I hope we'll have another opportunity for doing so. So for the time being, I'm just going to say thank you right now, Warren. Lydia, it's been an absolute pleasure. I think I spoke a lot. So thank you for your patience with me. And I look forward to talking again. That's just fantastic, Warren. Thank you so much. So what do you think? I know some great stories Warren shared here. And I hope you can take one or the other of these thoughts and implement it into your operation. Do you want to reach out to Warren? His website is uh, Warren Green and Associates. It's all one word, Warren Green and Associates. And I know he would love to hear from you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I am looking forward to presenting the next one to you very soon. See you then. Bye-bye.